Welcome to a series of audio recordings of the panels on display in Lataba Elephant Hall in Lataba Rest Camp, Kruger National Park. The purpose of the recordings is to make the panels accessible to visually impaired people, but also to people in faraway places unable to travel to the exhibit, so that everyone can appreciate the wonder of elephants and get a taste for their lives, their history, and a share in the celebration of some of the park's legendary tuskers. The 2017 revamp of the panels was a collaboration between Sandparks and the University of the Sunshine Coast in Australia. We're here at the Goldfields Environmental Education Centre in Lataba, perhaps better known as the Lataba Elephant Hall. We're going to take listeners on an audio tour of the facility, but before we get started, I have the privilege to talk with Kirsty Redmond, who perhaps knows the centre better than anyone else. Kirsty is the Environmental Education Manager for the Zanatsani region of Kruger National Park, which for the uninformed is the northern region of Kruger, i.e. everything in Kruger north of the Ulifants River. She's worked here at Latabe in various guises for the past 17 years. Hello there, Kirsty. Hi. Just as a bit of background, in the 1970s and 1980s, seven bull elephants with enormous tusks and collectively labelled the Magnificent Seven, rose to prominence through features in Custis, the then Sandpulse magazine, on South African television, and through a series of paintings on each elephant by renowned wildlife artist Paul Bosman. The names Mafanyani, Shingwesi, Shau, Zombu, Kambahu, Ndelemiti, and Joao were forever etched in Kruger folklore. The centre was first constructed in 1993 and originally intended to house the tusks on display for perpetuity of the Magnificent Seven and a few other giants who, although not part of the original Seven, had ivory worthy of inclusion. By 1993, all the Seven had passed away and thankfully had their tusks retrieved, except, except Joao, whose tusks broke off, presumably in a fight, and were never recovered. But the hall also gives in-depth information and insight into elephant ecology, history, and the role in custom and cultural belief. Visiting the centre is thus a journey of interpretation, of discovery, and if that is not reason enough, with its custom-designed air conditioning to protect the display collection, it is just about the coolest place in the whole of Kruger, where outside temperatures in summer are often up over 40 degrees Celsius. But after over 20 years of existence, the hall and its displays were understandably looking a little tired. So it was a wonderful boost that the University of Sunshine Coast in Australia undertook the task of partnering Sandparks to revamp the interpretive displays in the hall. This sounds like an unusual partnership, Kirsty. How did it come about, and how did the partnership work? Yeah, the partnership came about in, in a very unusual way that most people wouldn't expect. I actually had a colleague on maternity leave who had asked me if I would meet with a professor from the University of the Sunshine Coast, which was Dr. Sheila Peake, as she would not be available at the time. Otherwise, I probably never would have met Sheila, and whether or not this project would have happened would, have, would really be in question. Um, Sheila then came to see me, as opposed to, to my colleague, and we discovered a mutual passion for interpretation and we got chatting and ended up spending most of the day talking about interpretation in the park, 
where we've come from, where we're going to, and what could we possibly achieve together for interpretation. And this meeting then led to a very wonderful opportunity for Kevin Moore and myself to go across to Australia, funded by the university, to actually visit the centre, visit the university, see what they do there, and to go and look at a lot of the interpretation within national parks in Australia. And one of the realisations that Kevin and I both came to is that Australia has definitely got interpretation down packed. They have a very unique way and they understand visitors and what is needed for interpretation very clearly. And in these meetings I very sort of loosely joked about redoing the panels for the hall. It's something we've been looking at for a number of years and to try and actually get it done was being proving to be quite a challenge. Most display technicians wanted to completely gut the hall and take us in a completely different direction, which was not what we were looking for. So Sheila, with her enthusiasm, before I could blink, had all of her colleagues lined up, and here we are, brand new hall, partnership in place, and more projects on the way. Mm, that's fantastic. Now, the elephant exhibition is the draw card, but there's so much more that goes on in the centre in terms of environmental education and interpretation of visitor experiences. What are the things that keep you busy most of the time? Is it mostly about school groups you deal with, or do you interact with people of all ages? Um, it's a bit of a balance here at Latabo. We're quite unique in regards to education centres in that we have the Elephant Hall. Uh, most of our other education centres don't have a facility that matches ours. So we have a balance of school groups and tourists that come and visit us on a regular basis. As a centre in terms of environmental education, we cater in the region of 15 to 16,000 school children through the year, so that certainly keeps us on our toes. And then in terms of visitors to the hall, we can average between three to 10,000 guests a month in the hall, depending on whether we are on holidays or whether it's our quieter season. So we can have up to about 90,000 visitors coming into the hall. Many of those people are very keen to talk to somebody. They want to show their sightings. They're looking for people to give them information. So we have quite a unique situation here where we can interact on various levels with everybody involved. Hmm. Now that the Magnificent Seven and indeed many of their successors have passed away and are heralded by their presence in this exhibition, what about the current crop of replacements? Tell us more about the emerging Tusca project. Okay, the Emerging Tusca project is, has become a, a passion of mine. Um, it's been run quite informally for many years. After the Magnificent Seven were initially proclaimed, interest in the Big Tusk has never actually died away. And Dr. Ian White used to get many images of new Big Tuskers, and it was very informally done. They kept files on them. He had a lady who helped him, Colleen Wood. She did wonderful work in mapping where these guys were, where you could see them. But it wasn't generally available to the public. It was just something that was loosely kept. And when I came on board, Ian approached me and said, look, you're sitting at the Taba. It is the Elephant Hall. How do you feel about us formalizing the project and running it from the Elephant Hall? So being very new and enthusiastic and not quite realizing what I was getting myself into, 
I said, of course, yes, let's go for it. Why not? And we put the proposal into the Sand Parks Research Committee for the project to actually be formalized, and we received approval to carry on. In the first years, we ran a competition in conjunction with the project to try and encourage people to the fact that the project now existed and that they could submit their images. The first couple of years were probably the most interesting because we got a lot of historical images that people dug out in an effort to send us images. And we got some wonderful new tuskers out of it. We identified new home ranges. And we found that the public were able to give us a lot of information that we couldn't get on our own. And it was a useful resource for us to have. In 2009, the competition stagnated slightly. And it was mainly on the basis of a lot of our existing generation had passed away. So we only had a few Tuskers that were alive and well at the time, and we weren't learning a lot of new information from the competition anymore. So the decision was taken that the competition would cease, but that the project would continue. And we're at this position now where, with social media, the forums, and the Facebook pages, we've got a lot of people in a position to share information. And we work very closely and we've given our project a bit of a resurgence through these um, resources that we're now getting the information and we've got quite an impressive database now on the movements of the Magnificent Seven. We can give you home ranges, what the drivers are. What's also quite interesting coming out of the data is where the Big Tuskers have moved from predominating in the south previously to now being more in the north. So we, we're sitting with quite a, a unique and valuable, for, for me, a valuable research database that anybody could come in and actually look further into these big tuskers and, and use. And aside from that, the, the value we get for guests, it's a passion. These big mm -hmm. tuskers become such a big part of people's visits to the park. and. Until you've actually seen one of them, the emotion behind seeing one of these magnificent elephants and interacting with them is something I don't think many people actually understand until you have been lucky enough. And I often joke that we've managed to convert many a big five chaser to being an elephant look chaser. They look for these big boys because there is something just so special about them. Mm -hmm. um, we're currently sitting with about 24 named Tuskers and they vary, obviously, in size. We, we work with the project now on a, a dual-level basis where emerging tuskers are tuskers that the ivory extends to from a meter to about a meter and a half from the lip line, and they are elephants that are worth watching. So we keep an eye on them, we have files on them, and we wait for submissions from guests. The moment we see that they hit their growth spurt, and their ivory is starting to develop, and that's usually after their sixth set of teeth has come in, so around 45. Then we start looking at, okay, these guys are developing, it's time they're entering, they've gone past a meter and a half, so we can now turn them a large tusker, and that's when we name them. So at the beginning of this year, we saw 12 tuskers added to, to our new ranks, which is fantastic, there are some beautiful bulls out there, of the 12, three of them are actually cows. So we've got some impressive ladies out there as well. They don't quite match the men, but they're still pretty impressive for, mm -hmm. for ladies. So it's an exciting time, and it's lovely for people to see that these elephants still do exist. 
there's so few in Southern Africa and we're one of the last places that you can actually see them. So that's yeah, something that we're going to keep going with and hopefully we'll keep having Tuskers as long mm. as people keep protecting them. That's incredible feedback and a real genuine example yeah. of citizen science and Absolutely, how the public can yeah. become involved in conserving nature. Now, building on that, you and some of your colleagues from our communications division are planning to do a promotional expedition hunting for some of the emerging tuskers in November. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that was something that sort of came up when you, when you think too much sometimes. You sort of think, well, how can I promote the project? Social media is wonderful, but in some ways it can lead you astray. And what we're trying to get people to understand is we're not just looking for pictures of elephants. There's value to this project and that we get tangible data out of sightings. And so we thought, well, why don't we try? The people who are involved with the project, who work with it daily, are often people who haven't seen Tuskers before. So let's get out there. Let's go and look for these guys. We've named them. Let's go find them. And let's involve the public. You know, let's have people have that excitement and to promote the project as well, to keep people submitting, but also just to add a bit of a fun element to it, I suppose, to some degree. The, the forum are looking at saying, well, let's do some fundraising out of it that we can support the Tuskers projects in the long run. So I believe, I'm a bit worried when I get told there will be dares involved, but it should be interesting. <laughs> And yeah, we're hoping to find the Tuskers. We're taking along hopefully one of our rangers who's quite knowledgeable about elephants. And the idea is that we can learn more about these big animals and the uniqueness of them by seeing them at face value. And we hopefully through similar mediums, podcasts, and I believe there's a quite a fancy camera coming with that we'll be able to show people and then people will be able to, if you can't be here yourself, hopefully we can bring you here. And the next time you come, it's your turn. Now you know where to look. Sharing that experience, yeah. that sounds very exciting. With the revamp of the centre, the one elephant I feel really sorry for is Zhao, um, one of the original seven. He was the youngest of all the bulls with large tusks, and if his tusks hadn't broken off with age on his side and with tusks continually growing, he may have gone on to be the biggest of them all. But because his tusks were never retrieved, he no longer features in the display. Am I being overly sentimental? Definitely not over-sentimental. Um, the Tuskers are an emotive issue, and I, I always say that everybody's got their favourites and everybody's entitled to their opinions. Zhao was before my time. From what I understand from the people in the know, he broke his tusks several times, not just once. He broke them into several different pieces. So up until the day he died, he managed to distribute his ivory far and wide in the park. Um, the decision was taken because his ivory wasn't available, that he wasn't put up in the hall. And as I said, it was a bit before my time, so I didn't have an influence. And yes, I, I do tend to agree. I, I feel that he's kind of lost and people forget that he is part of the Magnificent Seven. But as all of the ivory here is original, um, the feeling was that because we couldn't put his original ivory in, they weren't going to put him in at all. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Casting the ivory at the time was not an option that was seen as acceptable. So unfortunately, he doesn't make it in. But I do share your sentiments in that one. No, good. And just to let the listeners know, um, Zhao is a common Portuguese 
um, surname, the equivalent of the English name John, John yeah. um, and he's named after João Albacini, who was a frontiers Portuguese frontiersman active in uh, the area um, over a hundred years ago. And people going in Pabeni Gate can go visit the Albacini uh, ruins, now known as the Pabeni uh, interpretive display, and learn more about his activities in the park, but also about some of the local African tribesmen who lived in the area. But you mentioned ivory, and that brings us on to an important issue. Ivory has a tremendous value. So what about security? Is the ivory on display here, is it real, or are there any costs of the real thing? Yeah, all the ivory in the hall, with the exception of the half mount that you see when you walk in, is the real ivory. Um, this is well protected. We have quite stringent security that's been installed in order to protect it. The intrinsic value with the Magnificent Seven renders the ivory priceless. Um, you know, it's it's very unique. They belong to specific elephants, so it is quite important that we protect it. But there is something to be said about the feeling and being able to touch real ivory that you would never get from a cast set. And I do feel quite strongly, especially with education value, that the sanctuary side to things has immense value with educating. And to try and get what real ivory feels like, it's, it's, to me it's a good thing to have the real ivory, yeah. It does make our security more important, but that's the price we pay. The system's in place, so I think we are protected, yeah. Mm, no, that's comforting to me. Now, looking around the displays and knowing the high densities of elephant that are in the park at the present, which is, of course, a mainly managed environment because of the presence of boundary fences, it is amazing to read that when Kruger was first established in the first few years after 1898, there were no elephants left in the park, and they recolonized the park on their own from about 1905. Tell us more about that. Yes, it's, it's something I also find quite interesting. I always assumed that elephants were populated in the area quite prolifically. And if you actually look back at the history, um, Dr. Ian White did quite a lot of work on it in his PhD. Elephants weren't really common. A lot of people have the assumption that they were predominantly hunted out, but they don't seem to have occurred in the numbers that we experience them today. And I think it's quite fitting that the first elephants that arrived were from this part of the area and to have the elephant hall here I think has a little bit of a sweet little story to it and it's actually phenomenal when elephants, you think about elephants that are usually migrating east, west, west, east how they're actually populated in the areas that they moved into and how long it actually took for them to populate the entire park is quite fascinating. The information is available if anybody is interested in it it is in the Elephant Hall, the maps there that can show you exactly when, and it also will be on the website. So if people are more interested in learning exactly when elephants were sighted where, they can certainly look it up. Yeah, that's quite clever of you. Don't give too much detail here. Invite <laughs> the people to come and come and see us. Yeah, there we go. But where to from now? What does the future hold for the Elephant Hall? What are your next plans? Um, the upgrade of the panels was one of our biggest priorities, and it's been a labor of love for me for the last of seven, seven years of actually working on this project to see it come into fruition. So that was our big project for this year. We want to sort of look at more ways of making the Elephant Hall accessible to different people. 
And one of the aspects we're looking at is um, the accessible um, sighted people. We looked into the idea of Braille when we did the display. And a lot of the advice we received from people was that it's, I, I hesitate to say a dying language because I don't want to offend people, but it's not something commonly used these days. Because technology is so good with audio, um, we would be better off looking at a different route. So one of the things we're looking at doing is a app where you can do an audio tour off your phone, off your tablet, where you can download the tour and you can actually do a tour around the Elephant Hall with your earphones and we actually be able to enjoy the museum. We've made a lot of the displays, we've taken a lot of stuff out of display cases so that you can actually feel it, that the sensory component is you more there. Um, the next big project will also be we're looking at a virtual tour. So you can be sitting in London in minus 10 degree winter feeling sorry for yourself, but you can come and visit us in the Elephant Hall. So the idea behind that will also be for school groups, that within the classroom environment when you're in the digital tour, when you are facing a panel, you can click on that panel and a PDF of the information will come up. So all the information that is readily available in the hall will now become accessible to anybody who wants to see it. doesn't mean we don't want you to come visit us, but it does mean that you can, when you're feeling a bit down and you want to see the elephant all will be visible for you. Okay. So those are some of the things we're looking at. And then one of the other projects which we'd like to start also in conjunction with the university um, is looking at educational aids for schools. So how we can actually get curriculum-related activities based on the Elephant Hall, also online, readily available as flyers, handouts, so that we can help a lot of the schools in the area that are lacking resources and the information necessary to do this sort of education. Wow, a lot on your plate. <laughs> Thanks so much. That's been a wonderful interview, <laughs> I think we've covered a lot of ground, mm -hmm. and I hope the listeners will appreciate um, uh, your wisdom and sharing your knowledge with us. Thanks very much. My pleasure.